This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Every good architecture project has a concept. Every single one. This is the big idea that you will build your entire project around. And if you look at your project and you can't recognize it, you need to keep working until you've developed one. At least, that's my premise. And today, Andrew and I will be discussing what this might mean and what it possibly looks like. Welcome to episode 96, The Big Idea. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I will be discussing a topic that he and I have talked about on many occasions and in many different environments. Mostly my front room and bars, but... (laughs) A lot of different yeah. bars. So a lot of different bars. Yeah. 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 And it's the it's the big idea. Like I'm doing air quotes. The big idea. You know, as we started thinking about this, so this was Andrew's idea. And even though we talked about it a lot, we're like, okay, let's do a show about it. You know, some people refer to this as the party. Like the big idea is like the party. Which is and I had to look this up a long time ago. Because they just started using it in school and I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> yeah. It gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. yeah. They never said, this is what this is. Like, no one ever said what I'm about to say. So already, the price of admission is about to be covered. That's what I'm about to say. So, party is derived from a French word, party pre. And it basically means to make a decision. So, parties in the big idea. It's basically a clarifying tool to help you organize and prioritize your design concepts as you work through your creative process. So, I kind of go, eh, it's close, because technically a party diagram, which is an initial concept, I mean, it could be a sketch, it could be a block model, you know, or even like a rudimentary diagram that represents a design concept. You know, we already mentioned party diagram. It's a word that's a little too, it's industry jargon, right? So I never yeah. use that word. I never yeah. talk to yeah. somebody and go, let's talk about the party. Never. <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, what we titled the show, I just simply call it the big idea. And it, quite honestly, is the thing that should help you decide when you make a decision, does it help or support your big idea or is it a barnacle to your big idea? That's yeah. it. Yeah. The big yeah. idea. Yeah. I I, uh, I find in, at least in the academic world, I think the party becomes a little restrictive in a sense because it's something that typically says some kind of like formal diagram. I don't mean like formal as in, you know, black suit, but. Formal as in like the form of the building, it relates to the plan or some kind of conceptual idea about how things are going to be arranged, which is why I try to stay away from it some because it doesn't allow for things, you know, about whether I'm going to respond to the context or nature or, you know, the shape of a banana or whatever it is, right? Like I don't use party. Shape of a banana. (laughs) Throwing it out there. I always use banana peels for like my ridiculous example of something, so. I guess that makes sense. You know, I still remember. I specifically remember this moment. So she was this German instructor we had. She was pretty intense. She had a heavy German accent. And I look back on it now and I go, God, I wish I was my age now in her class because I would have been, I would have loved like the cadence of how she talked. Because half the time she said stuff and I go, I don't know what you're saying. But it it wasn't because of the accent. It was like, I just don't know what that word means. (laughs) You know? And so party diagram was something that I, that moment when I said I looked it up, because like everyone was throwing it around, I go, I don't know what that word means. I remember I went to a, a hardware store for something. There was like, there's a cool hardware store in Austin. And oh, you could uh-huh. you could buy basswood there. That's where you'd go buy your basswood for some strange Yeah, I gotcha. And they had these bags. Think of it like a gallon Ziploc bag size. So not little, right? Not giant, but not little. And mm-hmm. it was just, you could buy... One of those jammed packed. I mean, like, I don't know how they got the zipper closed jam packed full of every random size, shape. I mean, basswood, a billion pieces. Just a different bunch of different pieces. And yeah, stuff for and, six bucks. Yeah, yeah. For six bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was so much wood. I, could, I don't normally need giant pieces of basswood. So all these like little pieces and the stuff. So I bought every one they had. Which was like three. <laughs> it went a lot. <laughs> and so I'm in class 
and we had this project. And I was like, whatever it is I'm doing, I'm using this basket. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I'm going to do. They had boards in the bag. They had, I mean, it wasn't just like little nibbles. They were all like pieces less than a foot long. Yeah. But they had like these boards. And so I built like this matrix of stuff. And she just thought they were the greatest, coolest little models she had literally ever seen. She's like, this is your party diagram. And I was like, I don't know what that word means. <laughs> You're like, and sure. And I remember as it evolved, but I hadn't looked up what party diagram meant yet. I think it was just my sophomore year, so I was still pretty young. As the project evolved, and we have like our first big kind of design concept, like it, it actually looks like a building now, as opposed to like the party diagram kind of presentation we did and talk about our mm-hmm. concept. She never, ever liked my project as much as she liked that party diagram that I made. And every single review, she was like, she go, you're not capturing the party diagram. And, yeah. and every single time I had, that's why I finally looked it up, because I was like, I don't know what that means. So I finally went and looked it up. And I was like, yeah, how am I supposed to represent this concept? It was just like layers and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you what the project was, because, I'm, well, okay, I will. I don't understand trying to figure out how to say it, but basically I decided to make an architectural theme park is what I did. (laughs) Okay. And there were like four different layers and there were ramps that went around and like, oh, you would travel through the international style building. And it was like, how could I make a, like an architectural Mm -hmm. folly that distilled down the international style to like just the five rules of architecture that the Corbett did? Like here, here it is. Bam. Yeah. They were all very small. Think of it like a supersized jungle gym of architectural styles. And you had yeah. ramps and stuff. You moved through it. And I thought I killed it. And, um, you know, I did not I did not get an A-plus in that class, I'm going to tell you. Yeah. There was a professor. He understood what I was trying to do, and he didn't, he didn't say, yeah, you did it. But he ruined my life in this moment. And this is a complete <laughs> hijack. I'm going to hijack our entire show for just like maybe 90 <laughs> seconds. I haven't thought about this in so long but I've told the story before. So as I'm telling him about this experience and moving through this like architectural jungle gym of styles and stuff like that, he starts talking about the Rothko chapel down in Houston mm-hmm. that Philip Johnson did mm-hmm. the way he described it in my mind, the way it manifested. So maybe I should clarify that. Maybe I just totally misunderstood how he described it. But in my mind, the way that this building was, is you walked into this octagonal shaped room and Rothko's paintings were on the wall and they're all dark and, violets and deep purples and blacks and like maroons, but the light level so low that you sit on this bench and you're looking at this painting and it just looks like this big black smear. But as you know, five minutes later, as your eyes are adjusting to the light, you start to pick up some of the reds or maybe some of the oranges are starting to come through. Five minutes after that, you start to notice, oh, there's some purples and there's this there's this decompression that happens that forces you to sit on this bench for a half hour and the painting literally emerges from this black thing on the wall. I was like, that sounds so incredible. And so me and a couple of my buddies drove down there to see it. And it's nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's we walked in and it was like the stuff's just right there. It didn't seem like a particularly nice building, quite honestly. And in fact, there was one of those yellow like mop buckets, like maybe two feet from one of the paintings on the wall with a mop in it. And I'm like, here it is. I'm looking at this paint and there's a mop bucket literally two feet away from it. And it ruined the whole, the, the whole building is ruined for me now. I hate, I hate it. I'm so bitter. Anyway, that's a huge departure rabbit hole. So that's the big idea. I didn't understand what party was. I didn't understand like the idea of an organizing concept in the beginning, even though I was already a year and a half into my architectural education about how these ideas might manifest themselves in something that would help you make decisions as you go from a concept into a more realized kind of building. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a difficult thing, though, for almost any student to do. The longer I do this, the more I realize it's a difficult thing for them to wrap their brains around and how to use this, a big idea to drive everything that they're doing and be that sounding board for every decision that they make when it comes to their project, which I mean, that would kind of be how I would define the big idea is more about that singular thought or phrase, Mm -hmm. I think, 
and it could be diagrammed, of course, that is used to structure your project around, right? It's like you said earlier, I always tell my students, it, as we move through the semester, I'm going to ask you, well, does this support your big idea? Does it oppose it or is it neutral? Two of those three are okay. One of those <laughs> is not, you yeah. know, and it's just that thing that you're used to, to really organize whatever it is that you're doing on your project. And that could be a million different things, but it should be something instead of just bouncing around from this idea to that idea to this idea. And you get this crazy glob of a project that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That's yeah. some folly of the international style that moves into whatever else you were moving <laughs> into your architectural theme park. Well, it's funny because now the way I describe that when I'm working with people in my office that are, you know, my, my junior and I see that whatever organizing idea that we already talked about, if they departed from it, I go, we're in the land of pottery barn design. And nobody understands yeah. that. And I go, it makes perfect sense. Let me explain it to you. Yeah, because you got to explain that to me. Did you ever remember getting the pottery barn catalog? Like They were like huge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And what would happen is every picture you would see was perfectly manicured. It was like perfectly like laid out. Everything was amazing. And then you yeah. turn the page and there's like, it's another amazing image. But- the image on one page didn't necessarily go with the next page. It's like, here's all these collection of these great things, but they don't all go together, right? So you yeah. can have something that is 10 of amazing things that don't add up to one really amazing thing. And so I yeah. go, so I go, this is Pottery Barn. And that was my way of saying, look, you have a couple of good ideas here, but they're not working together. They're, they're not adding up to something that supports what we're trying to accomplish here, right? So Pottery Barn is what this is. <laughs> Yeah, because if you bought those rooms, like every page of your house would look crazy because it would be so many yeah. disparate things happening, right? Every room would be like a different whole genre. And yeah. every room might be amazing, but like well, this room doesn't like this is Frankenstein's <laughs> house, right? Yeah. Or, or no, yeah. not Frankenstein. Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde. I got my monsters <laughs> mixed up. So that's one of the concepts that we use. And you and I have talked about it. And really, I think what really kind of precipitated us having as many conversations about this as we've had is when you started teaching, because this is not really a topic that you would like two architects walking down the street don't just start combust yeah. into big idea conversation. Not so, normally. Not normally. And so I'd be in a jury, and this is a big thing for me when I'm when I'm doing crits and reviews with students, is you're kind of all over the place, which is not a constructive thing to say to somebody who's in a learning environment. So you'll say, can you tell me what your big idea is? And can you tell me how the things you've pinned up on the wall or the story that you're trying to tell me, how that all adds or contributes to what your big idea is? Because in my mind, the big idea can not only help you solve architectural problems, it can help you solve like presentation problems. If you pin up something on the wall, first off, we've already agreed, it's fair game. I can talk about whatever you pin up on the wall. <laughs> yeah. If you're doing this project and you've got this like lantern thing and this is a beacon that everything else gets organized around and then you throw some janky studio apartment floor plans on there that don't like, I go, why did you spend time on these? No, they don't, who cares, right? I don't care if you have a chair in the corner of your apartment layout. Can you spend more time showing me how the big idea is manifested in this lantern idea or this organizing concept? That's where yeah. your effort should go to, not, hey, here's where the copier goes. What? We don't need to yeah. know that. That doesn't contribute to the narrative. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, you mentioned a different problem I think that a lot of students have is that they want to try to cram every cool idea that they've ever seen or had into a single project, right? Mm -hmm. And they have to learn to filter through those things in a way that can create a good project. And I, I, I try to use that idea of this big idea, this concept as that's a way to filter these things through. Because just because it's a cool idea or you've seen it somewhere and it looks cool doesn't mean it's right for this project or it's right for your project or, you know, any of those kinds of things that are happening. And, and I refer them back to, so what's your big idea and how does this help it? Whatever this, you know, eight-story atrium that's got, you know, Harry Potter stairs in it or something, <laughs> like, how does that help? Like, yeah. you know, that doesn't seem to work with your concept of simplicity through form or whatever it is, right? I'm like, it doesn't work. They, they don't match. Right. You know? You're like, okay, cool, but why? Yeah. So how do you create, so when you're working with your student as a resident academic, if somebody goes, how do I create a big idea? Where do I get my big idea from? Uh, and I tell them, I mean, it's a lot of places. You know, I think it could come from the context that the project is in, the site that it's on, 
you know, the program of mm-hmm. the of the project, even looking at precedents or, you know, even if it's theories or something like that. I mean, and sometimes, you know, they can pull them out of thin air, but I think there are ways to think about what you want to achieve in an architectural sense for the project. And I try to make them be able to articulate that in a phrase or sentence or diagram. And they're not trying to write, you know, a thousand words to say, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm like, no, you should be able to tell me in about, you know, 10 words or less. Yeah. This is what my project is about. Yeah. And they struggle with it. I mean, they struggle with it a lot. Yeah. You kind of go, you have a pencil and you got six lines to tell me what your big idea is. That's the trick. Actually, you know what? I go, that could actually be a really cool assignment. <laughs> you need to tell me a story in 32 lines, like whatever yeah. it is. And then you go, all right, now 24 lines. Like, how can you distill it down and get to this thing where you go, all right, now the basis kind of articulation. You know, it's funny when you were saying like context or site or program or precedent or all these kind of things. And I think you said thin air. I want to say that seems like most of my RT diagrams, once I figured out what that meant, came out of thin air. <laughs> yeah. And and what was interesting about it, and I didn't even realize this at the time when I was doing it, like when I had all that basswood and I was I, I was making art is what it was. I look at mm-hmm. this and I go, how can I glue stuff on this board using all these other pieces of board and make something that's visually interesting and cool? And then how can I turn that into architecture? That's what I was doing. And I was failing miserably at it. Your party diagram is amazing. It's amazing. Your architecture is not amazing. <laughs> right? Like Your translation of that into architecture is, yeah. You know, now I, I look back and I go, maybe if I'd understood what that meant more, I would be able to make a more direct connection between literally this little, you know, six by eight piece of wood art that I was making and use that as my diagram or contextually or say, look how I'm creating this layers or there's open space or positive and negative. And like I could have taken that somewhere mm-hmm. if, if I'd only had a brain. <laughs> Well, I, th- I think it's a, I think it's a common problem, but it's an important one, and I think it's really important to, to practice that in school. You know, and I, you talk about that sort of project of twelve lines or twenty four lines or whatever. I mean, one of the first things when I have a, a full project, you know, I don't do this in in earlier studios because it's too much. I think for them to bear at some point to say what's the concept for what you're doing. But you know, in most of my upper level classes where we're doing a single project for the semester. And we start out with, you got to figure out what your concept is. Here's the program. Here's the site. You know, here's the project type. And, you know, you can look at precedent stuff. Before you start designing anything, you got to have a concept. Again, if it's six words, that's what it is. And this is what we're using to guide everything that you're doing. Whether it's the site, you know, the way the site works, the way the building works, the way, you know, people move through the space, whatever it is, we're going to relate it to this concept. I, they struggle with it, right? Sometimes I'm I'm having to help them <laughs> articulate a lot of the times what it is they actually want to do. They have a hard time putting it into words. You know, well, I think that's a tall order for almost anybody, like regardless of your maturation sure, or how long you've been at it. I, I think there's a clarity that, that is required to go through the exercise you just described. And I don't think it ever gets easier. I just think you understand its purpose better. So you don't struggle with the idea that you have to do it even though it's still not easy to do it. Yeah, I would agree. There is a bit of that involved, right? Because it's not that easy for me to do either. It's easy for me to do for them because I can hear them mumble on about what it is they think they want to do and I can help them articulate it. But yeah, it's difficult, I think, for any architect to just sit down and and probably do that succinctly. Yeah. But that's what I try to do. That's what I try to make them do, mainly because it makes them think a lot, right? They try to figure it out. Well, there you go. College, right? Think. (laughs) Exactly. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. I'm sitting down today with Mike Weiss, Vice President, Sales and Marketing with Peterson, maker of pack-clad architectural metal cladding system. Mike has been in the construction industry for 29 years, starting at Ferguson Enterprises, then focusing on the metals industry for 27 years, working briefly at Reynolds Metals, and the past 23 years with Peterson. Hi, Mike. Thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Good morning, Bob. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. You know, we're coming out of winter for us, at least. You're in Georgia, Atlanta, and I'm in Dallas. And we can sit back and look at the rest of the country and realize that we could be in shorts later today, later this week, possibly. So, so. yeah, we, 
we're a little spoiled. Our, our winters are a little easy compared to some of our friends up north. Absolutely. Hey, so we have a few things we can focus our discussion on today, but I would like to ask you about the box rib wall panels. And part of the reason I want to focus on that is I'm currently working on a boutique hotel project where I'm using this box panel profile because one, it's so clean and it's got a nice modern aesthetic. We're using the box rib number one, which is, as you know, a uniform pattern, but there are several styles of rib patterns available. So since I feel like I'm very well versed in this profile in this series, let's talk about this because other people should know about it as well. Absolutely. Thank you for choosing the box rib panel. Yeah. yeah. We love it. We've had such great success with it. And you know, it's a good looking panel. It really is. Yeah, it is. I like it. I like the uniformity of it, quite honestly. I like the fact that the depth of it is enough to give me like a nice shadow line and a visible profile at a distance, which is something that some profiles you can appreciate when you get a little closer to them. But this one has really nice contrast to the part that projects out and the part that recesses in. So I feel like I get a lot of value for my design gesture, if that makes sense. What I love about these is you mentioned the shadow lines. You can look at these profiles as they are in their individual lengths, individual pieces. But when you put them together and you put them on a wall and your example of this boutique hotel, that is the absolute perfect in use for this kind of project because you have a boutique hotel. You want to have that feeling. You want to have a certain design panache about it. So these box rib panels really add such great aesthetics to a building like that. And when you put them all together, you put them on the wall, the shadow lines, just the depth of the panels, everything about them really pop and make it look good. Combine that with all the colors that we offer and, and, you know, architects can just really have such a wide range of design and aesthetic options to go to. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We're using it vertically But one of the things that I like is I do have the option to run it horizontally if I want to. And you guys have a really nice gallery section on the Peterson website where you can look and find inspiration and see like, oh, this is what I'm trying to do. Has anyone else done it to either confirm that you're not going out on a design plank here that you might fall off of? Like someone else has done this. I'm not inventing the wheel here. And you can get some great creative juices flowing just by seeing some of the really great stuff that other people have done. You had mentioned the colors. There's a lot of color options. We're using gray. (laughs) We're not really going out too far on a limb here, but, but you guys have a lot of color options that people can choose from. Yeah, so we're up to 46 colors now, standard. Just so many options to choose from. It's funny that certain colors will have a run of popularity, and you mentioned the grays. The grays are extremely popular. A lot of these natural tones, so many options to choose from. And now we're not necessarily limited to those 46. You know, in conversations, I'm sure that you've had with other folks on the paint side, there are endless options of colors and we can match just about anything that's needed. You know, we can match other areas of the building that have certain paint codes and color looks, color aspects, 46 colors, a great group of colors to choose from, but we're not limited to that whatsoever. Hey, Mike, thanks for taking the time to talk about wall panels today. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Bob. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate your support too. Yeah, absolutely. And for those that are listening, please visit pack-clad.com, send an email to info at pack-clad.com, or call 800-PAC-CLAD. You can find your local representative pack-clad.com by clicking Rep Locator at the top of the website. All this information will be on the website in today's episode, so you can find it. You don't have to try to write it down as you're driving down the road. And Again, Mike, thanks again for the time. Really appreciate you sharing the passion you have and the products that you're making for us. Great. Thank you, Bob. Have a great day. All right. Cheers. Why do you think this is such an important part of the education process? Why is this important to go through this when you're in school? I mean, I think we were kind of leading to it, right, is that it, it helps you start to have a rationale for all the decisions that you make. Mm-hmm. Right. Instead of just making random decisions left and right, left and right, it gives you a guiding principle and something to work with throughout the whole project from the biggest scale that you're working at, whether it's urban scale or, you know, site planning down to even the smallest thing like details. I have this weird conceptual pyramid thing that I draw this graphic that I show them that starts with a concept and the top is details and that should run through all the way through their project. It gets harder as you move up the pyramid, you know, to instill a concept in a detail is a lot harder than to instill it in the overall building form. That's making my brain shut down a little bit. (laughs) 
You know, because truth is, I go, all right, it's not that hard to say. I got a big idea. Here's my big idea. And you're going to say, here's how it's going to manifest itself in massing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to manifest my massing with my big idea. And then you go, all right, now I'm going to interject like a circulation or how do people navigate through my building? Open, closed, light, dark, air, open, all these different kind of things. So you can start to penetrate into this mass and through this mass and still keep your big idea. Yeah. Getting down to the detail and still articulate the big idea, that's not an easy thing to do. No, it's not. It's not at all. I don't know that any of my students ever really accomplished it, but I pushed them towards it, right? Yeah. And, and I also think, you know, even if it's small things, right? Because, you know, we, we always talk about that there's design in every detail of the project, right? Down yeah. to the smallest thing. And that's really more of what I'm trying to push them towards to realize is that even these tiny details, there's some design aspect to it. And it might in some way relate to your, pro- to your, you know, your concept. And in some way you could relate to that, right? Yeah. You should try possibly to do that. But, you know, I mean, I think, I think part of that is, is really, again, learning how to sort of manage your own process and have something that you can refer back to and keep you on track. Because I think a lot of times as you move into the profession, I mean, I know that I did, I lost a lot of that, right? Because you just get so bogged down by clients pushing you this and budgets pushing you that. And, you know, it's really hard to maintain some of that focus. And so practicing that and trying to get a handle on that before you get thrust out into the work world is, is kind of important. So, I mean, basically what we're, what you're saying, and I agree with this, is that as a, well, I was going to say as a practicing architect, but I, I mean, it's, it's important for students to overarching, but the ability to keep the big idea in mind and establish kind of a connection through the entire project is really, really important for a lot of different reasons. Like, like, let's say I'm in the real world. It's me practicing at Bogopal, and I'm in front of the client. I can tell you that when I come up with a narrative, when I'm kicking off their project, before I say, your building is covered in glass, right? Before I get yeah. to that level, we try to set the table with a narrative, a story. You know, there's lots of different ways you can do it a day in the life. So and yeah. that's the way to articulate your big idea and plan it in their head so that as you unfold the rest of your tale, you say, we did this because it supports the story that we created at the beginning of the presentation. Yeah. This, yeah. this is what we're doing. And the truth is, it actually helps people who are on the receiving end of the story, the people that don't do what we do for a living, process what we're telling them. It's the thing that allows the idea to stick in their brain a little bit. Yeah. Because if it's just like, here's an idea, pow, and here's an idea, and here's an idea, here's an idea. They're like, there were like eight ideas. Of, I can remember four of them or something. Yeah. And they're, they're not tied together in any real way, right? I, I'm just going to have to remember them because they were so random. Yeah. I, I liked a couple of them. But it also helps you keep clients. I'm trying to think, how can I say this? Because it's, it's all in my head. I don't have the big idea in my head. So, but, it, but the concept of this is Frankensteining. This is, that's the word that popped in my head. Hmm. And it's the idea that I'm not a big fan. If you're a client, I go, here's 12 buildings that we can do. They're all great. They all do everything you want it to do. Which one do you want? We'll do that one. I hate that. Yeah. I go, that's yeah. the worst way to do it. In my mind, you go, here's the idea. Here's what we think you should do. This is what we think is the best solution. Now there's derivatives that we can like pull or put on or whatever the case may be to change this slightly, but this is it. This is what we think you absolutely should do. If you don't have that narrative in place, if you don't have that big idea in place, it's easy for the client to say, well, let's take this chunk from scheme one and we'll stick it on scheme three and break yeah. off five and stick it on the top of four and slide that over. And you're like, they just take their favorite bits and yeah, you got yeah. you got a Frankenstein project. Yeah. And you're like, okay, they grabbed all the best ideas from five different models, but they don't all go together. Yeah, now it doesn't work as a whole, like we you were mentioned earlier, right? Yeah, Frankensteining. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the name exactly. for it. Yeah, and again, you know, I think it's important to to get them to learn that task because it's. I don't think it's something that's going to get taught later in life, right? Like once they get out into the profession, nobody's going to really talk to them about that uh, mm-hmm. and how to how to maintain that. And I think it's important. And I think part of it is is for me, you know, I. I over the years felt more beat up by losing that part of myself in practice, right? And so now I'm, I'm more adamant about trying to instill that in other people. 
Well, you know what? And this, I don't know if this is a good thing to point out or if this is just be a dirty secret that we don't reveal. I'm about, I'm about, <laughs> I'm about to reveal it. Yeah. So the kind of the nurturing environment of college and studio and architecture programs allow you to really lean in and embrace the single idea, the big idea. When the reality is when you get in the real world, that's just one bit of a consideration. And you can try to overlap that on everything, but guess what? The big idea is the budget. Yeah. Yeah. The budget and the time. Yeah. You kind of go, I got all these outside forces. And so how can I, how can I take this project, have this kind of concept? And I will tell you, actually, so I was in Austin earlier this week and I met with a group that we're working with and they are equally brilliant geniuses and maddeningly frustrating at the same time. <laughs> and part of it's because they're big idea people. Like what they do mm. is a hundred percent of what we're talking about where they fall short is execution. They're like, here's the big idea. And we go, great. Now, how do we put that into practice? And they're like, that's above our pay grade. I'm like, Oh my God, it's so hard. Like, how do I do this? But the, the, the way that they craft the story, the way they tell the narrative, it's so great. And I love it so much. And I have such absolute design envy when I see what they do, because I go, this is like still college for them. Like, mm -hmm. This is still like this pure abstract reality. But they come up with the narrative. They come up with the kind of the story that tells you how things should be happening. And the truth is, it helps me solve the problems because I go, does that feed into the story? Like we're doing this thing and really they said uh, it's one step above DIY because we have this project and there's like no money. There's zero budget. And we're like, how can we mm -hmm. do these cool things but not spend any money? And so all the design gestures we're making are are to intentionally make it to lower the expectation of the finished product because we can't. <laughs> yeah. But how can we make it cool? How can we make it thoughtful? How can we make it considered but have it be okay that it's not top-notch execution because we don't have the money for it? Mm -hmm. Like how can we capture these moments? And it goes, we're talking about it at the detail level, quite honestly. It's like door casings. We talk about it when it comes to door casings. We talk about it like when we stick something on the wall. Like how do we create these moments? How can we create this depth? You know, and in, in one case – they took these ceramic bird calls, which were really cool. They, like you put mm. water, you put water in them and you blow on the tail and your breath goes through this ceramic bird. It's terracotta and like mm. warbles over this little bit of water, goes through it. And the sound comes out the beak and they're all slightly different shapes. And because they're slightly different shapes, they make different sounds when you kind of blow on. And one of their concepts is this. It doesn't need to be perfect. But we like the handmade, the craftsman, the this oh, was not yeah, a machine yeah. product. So if we stick a bunch of these on the wall, it allows us to get texture. It allows us to have the light rake across this and create shadow lines. It has this, we want the imperfection. We want, this one has a chip in it. Let's embrace that. Like that's not one to be discarded or not, no, call through and look for yeah. the ones that were beautifully made. That's exactly not what we're trying to do. We're like, celebrate the one that's wonky, right? Like almost yeah. put it in the best spot, you know, because it's like <laughs> yeah. more real, it's more natural, it's more celebrating the moment when this thing came into existence. And it it wasn't chucked out, but we like go, it's better because it's not flawless. Yeah. And yeah. we're trying to say, now extrapolate that as a concept through an entire building, you know, a $20 million building. That's what yeah. we're doing. We're doing it. And I mean, again, I think that that's, that's really fantastic when you get to do that and and also i feel like a lot of times you know and when i think i think it's more about some of the architects that maybe i admire they're able to do those kinds of things still and it, it doesn't necessarily it isn't necessarily limited by budget it seems right like they can do that it doesn't matter what the budget is they can pull something off that has this sort of really consistent concept and they manage to make it work some way or another yeah. Those are the architects that I seem to admire more than the ones that have, you know, these endless budgets that can do whatever they want, you know, fly in titanium from outer space and make their building out of moon rocks and stuff, right? But the ones that really work within limitations and still manage to create something that has, you know, it sticks to a concept and is a great project. You know what comes to mind when you said, when you said all of that hmm. was years ago, and this was like, oh, how long ago is this? I mean, this might have been in 
mid nineties when I first started buying like real architecture books, like not school oh, uh-huh. architecture books, but like I've got some, yeah, I got some a little mad money here. I'm going to go buy an architecture book. Yeah. I bought a book and I, you know, I still don't know if this is right. If anybody knows, let me know how to f- say this. Cause I'm sure I don't say it correctly, but it's Julie Eisenberg and Hank Koenig is how I say it. That's like, because of the way it's spelled, but I think it's actually Koenig. Anyway, I bought a book from them and mm-hmm. it's full of like these like beautiful details that were made with nothing. Like mm-hmm. they're doing like almost indigent housing, transient housing, and they're using the most down to earth, off the shelf materials you've ever seen in your life. And they're making amazing architecture from it. Thoughtful, considerate, respectful, all these things. And I had such admiration for them to say, look, they have no money. And they're doing really admirable, worthy work. And this was 30 years ago. Yeah. That's the trick. And I think that's the fruit of the kind of the having a narrative that drives your design process, right? It's not like, hey, put your money in the lobby and, you know, the stuff we're not going to photograph or whatever. It's not as nice. Yeah. Like these rooms that they had, they were amazing. And it, it has stuck with me to this day. The idea that, well, clearly someone with skill which is them can yeah. take a nothing budget and common, easy, readily available materials and be genius with it. Yeah. I've, I've been a fan ever since. Yeah. She's pretty awesome. She was actually a designer for TXA when I was on the committee. And so when they came in, I got to hang out with her and I, we went to dinner a couple of times and she was complaining about like how all of the education buildings here are so terrible. Like the K through 12, they're like, your budgets, they're not tight. They're fantastic. And then you design all these terrible things. And she's like, we could, if we had that kind of money, we could make this fantastic school. And, you know, we do. And I was like, wow. All right. But yeah. She's, she's pretty cool. I believe her. Cause that work, I saw it. It's, it's the, I hate to, oh, maybe I, I don't hate to say it. It's just, maybe I'm embarrassed that maybe I feel like my knowledge was at that time was too thin, even though I, I don't think that I'm wrong. But at that time, I didn't know a lot about the outside world because you got to keep in mind, at my age now, early 50s, I went through college with no internet. So if I wanted to learn about somebody, I went to the library. Yeah, it was a book. Went to the card catalog and looked it up. (laughs) It was was not as easy as it is now. I can't just type in cool modern architecture California, whatever the case may be. You can't, (laughs) you couldn't do that. Yeah. And so- for me to find them and to buy that book was a really, really big deal to me. And it had a fairly profound impact on me in the sense that if you don't have a good budget and you do garbage, well, that's still on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like they slapped everybody <laughs> a little bit like no budget is not an excuse for not doing something thoughtful and considerate and humane and respectful. And my biggest architectural hero when I was 24 years old was Julie Eisenberg. Yeah. And I said, and I say, Hank, I mean, I, I didn't know the division of skill at the point. Right. And I, I, I won't say that I still do because I think they're both probably pretty amazing people. Yeah. They're a package deal in my mind. So I don't want to yeah. give her all the credit and not give him any credit because I simply don't know, but them together, amazing superheroes in my mind. Yeah. And again, those are the kind of people that I like, right. They can, can do those kinds of things, right. That manage to make, something great out of seemingly nothing, right? And I think that's a much, honestly, to me, that's a much harder task and a much greater skill than, you know, I've got limitless budget and I can do whatever I want. Yeah. Okay, so here's the other thing. I I know we had a note written down in our run sheet to talk about. Some architects focus in on one big idea for their entire career. It suggests that the big idea doesn't necessarily manifest itself into Something you can put in your hand. It could be light. It could be shadows. It could be context. It could be water. It could be, you know, yeah, movement. I mean, it can be these more abstract kind of concepts um, that then manifest themselves. It doesn't have to be something that's so tangible as something you could put in your hand. Yeah, which is why I, I like to use that instead of this idea of a party, right? Because I mean, one of my favorite examples for something like that is uh, Tadao Ando, right? Like. His whole thing is about light, right? And almost every project he does, he's trying to do things to manipulate light, right? And that's, to me, that's always his big idea. That's what he's trying to do in his projects. And it doesn't matter what it is, that's his goal. 
right? I mean, that's his sort of big idea is how do I do that in this particular project or that particular project or whatever. To me is a, the big idea that you can spend your whole career doing, right? And I think a lot of times those people that have that sort of singular focus almost seem to be seem to be more successful in a way. And I don't know, you know, for all I know, that's 100% fabricated. It's like some things, right? We just figure it out after the fact and go, oh, yeah, that's what I was doing. But I don't know that I necessarily believe that. I think there is some something to the fact of like just trying to find the best way to manipulate light. You could spend your whole life doing that on every project that you ever worked on. Yeah. You know what? I, I do think that the people that I find to say, like, this is this is what I do. This is what I explore. This is, I'm going to define myself through the exploration of light. You know, I think those, on one hand, I go, you know why those people are successful? Because it's singular, right? It drives everything. And so it, it transcends a single project and goes project to project to project. And mm-hmm. as a result, it starts to define the work that they do. I mean, those people, if, if we're thinking about them, you know, I think we had a list is like Mies van der Rohe or Corbu, or there's a handful of people that you can associate with certain moves over and over and over again. And part of it's because their narrative, their big idea transcends an individual project. And it's like, every, it's all of them, right? Mm-hmm. It, it just, it just continues. And it's one, I don't know how much they love it. Cause at some point you go, like, do you feel constricted? Yeah. By contained it? by it. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Like this is what people want from me. Cause I mean, on a much more local level, I, there's an architecture person that I'm familiar with. They do a lot of residential work and they do solid residential work, but it all has a certain kind of feel to it. Like I can look at it and go, they did this. They did that. Yeah. One. They did yeah, this. Yeah. One. Yeah. And I haven't ever had a conversation with him about this, but I know he's had this conversation with, we have a mutual contractor buddy and he goes, Hey, when white houses stop being popular, I don't know what we're going to do. Like we're, we're getting hired to do this because like yeah. this is what people associate with what we do, like yeah. the white brick house. Like there's a certain look to it. And he goes, "Man, if people don't want that anymore. <laughs> I might be toast. Yeah. yeah, are we still going to get hired to do stuff? And I, yeah. I wonder how much of that is true for some of these bigger brand name architects that we're all familiar with. I, I don't know that it's necessarily true because like the first ones that kind of come to mind, you know, like Corbu. And his five points, right? Those are those yeah. are in every project that he tried to do. Now, he was another person that I think was really interested in the manipulation of light. Right. So there's other things yeah. that kind of creep into his work. Sure. But his five points of architecture, they're it's everything. But you know what? It, all his projects, like they're all different. Like yeah. that guy reinvented how his five things, the things he goes, this is what matters to me. Because quite honestly, like you can look at the international style and go, uh, that looks like every project Corbu did. Then all yeah. of a sudden things get weird. And he's like, I'm gonna work in concrete for a while, you know, and yeah, and things get different, but they're still kind of well, I still see this and I still see the light here and I still how they do this. I could line up a whole array of Corbu projects to someone who doesn't know and they wouldn't think that's the same person did those projects. Yeah. I think it would be if you if you don't let that idea evolve right or you don't evolve what that is and i think that's the thing right if you're doing it your entire life you start to learn from it and it starts to evolve even though you're still chasing the same thing you don't do it in the same way and that the application of that concept evolves over time because of what you've learned and because of all of your experience it's just like every other thing but it's still that singular focus i think that to me seems to put you in a in a special category maybe of of skill level, right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you have to be famous for that. I mean, I think there's probably, you know, non-famous people that are the same way, right? And I mean, I'm air quoting famous architect or whatever, right? But um, it, there's just a certain level of skill, I think, that it takes to, to be able to pull that off and continually, you know, have that be your focus. Well, there's something said to be to the folks that can reinvent themselves throughout their career, but still have recognizable work. Mm-hmm. You know, like I still, I still dig what Omar Gandhi's doing. You know, he's still, yeah. And he actually posted a picture the other day of something. I was like, God darn it, look at that! That's so great. And and I haven't seen it. So far, I mean, he didn't prepare me for it, mm-hmm. right? Like I hadn't seen it. There was no like, hey, here's what's coming, or like, I mean, it's pretty far along. And I looked at it and I was like, that's going to be cool. But you know mm-hmm. what? I'm getting to the point where 
I kind of go, based on uh, what the environment looks like and the building materials is using, I'm starting to recognize that's an Omar Gandhi project. Wow. Right. Or just like you can look at a project and go, that's a Tom Kundit project. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you start to go, this is what they do. And even when they reinvent themselves and again, more air quotes, yeah, their work can still be sometimes fairly recognizable. And I would love to have a conversation with those guys and go, how much do you love being recognizable? Part of me goes, I bet they hate it yeah. after a while. Maybe they're like, I want to do something else. I don't want I don't want to get hired to do this thing, but that's what people want. Mm-hmm. They hire me because they've seen my body of work and they're like, I like what you do. I want something like that. And you're like, I wanted something else. They're like, no, you're not. I want, that's what I want. <laughs> I wonder how much that actually happens. It's, it's got, it's got to happen. I think some, but at the same point, I think when you get to that level, you can be like, man, I don't want to do it. I'll go chase something else. Cause you know, you got that kind of clout. Ooh, nice. <laughs> Right? What is it? Your your Tom Main quote about you don't have any say in anything. Yeah, you get to to tell me the budget and what you need programmatically. You get no 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 input on the aesthetics, like what it looks like. Why do I care what you think? You're not educated. You don't don't get an opinion here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a a firm in Southern Texas that has that sort of reputation. You can always pick out their buildings even though they win a lot of awards and stuff in our state. The one in San Antonio? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, you know what? We're not saying it's bad. Their work is fantastic. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, but you can pick it out, right? It's not hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no question. Actually, I have a, a friend of mine that just uh, got hired to go work in their Austin office. And he's like, oh, I get to do design work. And, uh, and I was like, no, you're going to go learn how to design in their style. Mm-hmm. You're learning how to think <laughs> the way, right? I mean, they definitely have a yeah. brand and yeah, for sure. there's, there's zero disrespect. You know what? Cause what they're doing is great. It is funny. We had a client of ours, uh, and this is a project in Arkansas and, uh, we we're detailing it out. And finally they go, we need this to look less West Texas and more Northern Arkansas, which basically that's code <laughs> for less metal, more wood. That's really yeah. all that meant. All right, so we've been at it a while. Do you do you want to sum up the big idea? Yeah, I think it's funny. We were worried about not having enough to fill the time. And even though we rabbit hole a little bit, I think there's so much to talk about it, about the importance of having a big idea and using it to guide all of your decisions on a project as best you can. And, and for me, right, in the academic sense, I try to I try to instill it in my students early because it's important to try to establish that habit earlier in your architectural career because it may be difficult to hang on to yeah. uh, later in life. Well, I'm encouraged by the fact that it sounds like, even though you didn't say it, I'm assuming that you actually teach your students what like a party diagram is and what what that means and how that manifests itself as the big idea and how that's a governing kind of way of reviewing and evaluating a project as it moves forward. Because you know what? I mean, maybe I just missed that day. I don't remember missing much at school, quite honestly. You know, I yeah. missed I missed non-architecture classes with some regularity, but I, I don't ever remember missing a studio. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's part of like the second semester of freshman year, first year architecture. You start talking about party and that kind of stuff, doing party diagrams. So I would love to find that that party diagram. It was amazing. <laughs> I could literally glue it to a board and do like a six by six of it and people would pay big money for it. I could just. <laughs> you just crank those out. We just put them. Yeah. Sell them on the Etsy uh, Life of an Architect yeah, side you know or something. What? Just frame it right. And people go, that's high art right there for sure. <laughs> for sure. So. Yeah, there you go. So let's move on to this episode's Would You Rather. Yeah. I think we're on a nice run of would you rather's because uh, they've been interesting and I've gotten a lot of feedback lately. Yeah. We've been doing pretty good. At least making them pretty good some in some way. Yeah. They're, they're all terrible. Let's be honest. They're all ridiculous. Yeah. Look, and I need to say this for the people that are listening on these with the rat, would you rather? Cause the truth is, is we have like two types of listeners and it's like a, it's like a 70, 30 mix. So there's some people that as soon as we say we're doing the would you rather, they're out. They're like, I don't care. I'm done. Like, I don't I don't want the would you rather. And there's some people, the other 70, I think they just slog through the first part just <laughs> to get to the would you rather question. Uh, yeah. 
So this question goes to the 70% that is like, we're, we're sticking with you through the would you rather, okay? And I'm going to be interested to see. I think this is an easy one, but those are the ones that normally aren't the easiest, but people have hot sports opinions about. <laughs> like, I'll go, this is the right answer. They're like, no, you're crazy. You're a psychopath. So here you go. Would you rather sleep on a hard floor with a blanket and a pillow or on a wonderfully pillow-topped bed with no pillow and no blanket? <laughs> That's a terrible question. Ne- again, neither. <laughs> Jeez. Um, It's easy. This one's so easy to me. <sighs> so easy. I, I mean, I think I would probably go with just a bed. Oh, wrong. That is the wrong answer. I can't stand sleep. I mean, I, it, sleep on the floor is, is hard for me. It hurts me a lot. Even if I had a pillow and a blanket, it just hurts. Like, I don't know. I've never been able to sleep on the floor. Like, even as a kid, I hated sleeping on the floor. I don't know. Look, don't you know, know what? what? Nobody likes, well, that's not true. Some people in their cultures, they go, they sleep on the floor. It's no big deal. You know? Yeah. But I will tell you that. I've done both of these more times than I should. (laughs) And I don't know if this is a a safe story to tell. I don't know. Are we in a safe space here, Andrew? Can I I share a story? (laughs) So, oh, look, let me just tell you my answer. It's 100% sleep on a hard floor with a blanket and a pillow. 100%. Mm. Because I have to have something on me. Even if it's hot, it's a single sheet. It's got, it's something. I can't just. And see, I don't. I I can't just lay out. Boom. I'm not, I can't uh-huh. be that person. And I will tell you. So back when I was in college and y'all can look this up. I want to say it was like 1992, maybe mm-hmm. or 1990. One of the two is one of the very first Lollapalooza concert tours. And it was the best. It was the best one. This is back Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Ice Cube, Rage Against the Machine. Uh, I mean, everybody, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Ministry, like everybody was amazing. And I want to say that Pearl Jam, they were on at two o'clock in the afternoon. Like they weren't even close to headliners at this point. Yeah. So we went down to the concert. I just tagged along. I don't even know how I got in. I'm pretty sure I didn't buy a ticket. I don't know how I got in, to be honest with you. And it was crazy. And we thought that we would go to the concert. This is back before these like mega concerts wasn't huge. Like they weren't that common. Yeah. And so we go to this thing. And we're outside and there's like mosh pits and I'm just, we're so dirty and muddy and (laughs) disgusting and it's Houston and it's hot and everyone's sweating like crazy and people are like stroking out because of the heat. I mean, it was, it was bad, but it was a lot of fun. Well, when it ended, it was late and we thought, oh, we'll go to the concert. We'll leave and drive back to Austin. Drive home. Yeah. Right. And the drive from Houston to Austin, I mean, it's a couple hours. It's not like a little 30-minute jog, a couple hours. And we're all completely drained. We've been jumping around in the Houston heat and sun for like 12 hours. And we're like, oh, we can't make the drive back to Austin. We're going to crash because we're all going to fall asleep. Some guy goes, oh, a friend of mine lives in this area of town. Uh, Let's find his house. So he just starts driving down streets. I was like, do you even know where he lives? It's somewhere around here. Like, like, do you know the street? Even if you don't know the house. I'm just going to recognize it. Oh, there it is. That's the one. Yes. We're literally for like 45 minutes and we're like, what? we could have been back in Austin by now. What are we doing? So, and there were like, let's see, there were eight of us. And we're finally like, we just need to go to a hotel room. And being college kids, we didn't have any money. Nobody had any money. So somebody goes in and rents a room and it was two queen beds for eight 20 something men. Right. <laughs> so we go yeah. in there and like nobody had a change of clothes. Like nobody had a change of clothes. So we all want to take showers, but guess what? They don't have eight towels in there. Yeah. So I ended up taking a shower and washing out my, my clothes and like my underwear. Right. Got to have clean underwear. That's just come on. That's life. There was no towels to dry off with. So I used the hand towel and I was a little thinner then than I am now. So I could wrap this hand towel around my waist, but I looked like Brutus. Like it, it opened up as it went down my leg and it was barely yeah. long enough to like cover it up yeah. what needed to be covered up. And 
we took the top of the mattresses off the bed. Oh, the box springs. Yeah. So the idea was uh, two guys on each box, box spring and two guys on each mattress. But then we had to divide up or like the mattress is better than the box spring. So yeah. if you're the mattress guy on the floor, you get uh, you don't get the blanket. You don't get the sheet. Right. Because it's not like there was a comfort yeah, yeah. or anything. It was like a sheet. Yeah. And yeah. so I ended up being one of the people that was on the box spring. And we had a box spring, two pillows, two dudes, me and another guy, and a sheet, a single sheet. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night, and this guy is like, he could not have been any closer. We were completely big spoon to big spoon. Yeah. And I was like, dude, get off me. And his response was, it's so cold. <laughs> Nice. And I'm like, I'm in a towel. That is it. I'm in a Brutus towel. I don't even have underwear on. You need to not be on me. And he's like, but it's so cold. That's ridiculous. And so that 100% is why I go, you got to have blankets. You got to have a pillow for the rest of my life. I don't care mm. if I'm sleeping on glass. I need a blanket <laughs> and I need a pillow. 100%. That's all I need. That's what I need. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I just don't. I don't, I mean, the pillow would be hard for me, but the blanket, I mean, I f I'll fall asleep on the couch or in a chair, chair's rare, but like on the couch and I don't have anything on me. Like I just sleep. So I don't, I don't necessarily need a blanket. I mean, the pillow would be the harder part. I don't know. And my neck, I'm, I'm not a small guy. <laughs> so <laughs> like, I'm going to get a crick in my neck from like my shoulder to getting my head on the bed. Yeah. That's all terrible. That's why you need the pillow too. Like you'd be bending your neck over it. I know, but I can't dude. If I step on the floor, like the whole, whatever side is on the floor is going to just hurt. It just mm. hurts. I, know. I don't know. There's so many civilizations that they don't sleep on mattresses and they make it work. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure that they do. All right. You chose one. I chose the other. Yeah. I'm not changing my mind. You're a hundred percent. No, I'm not. Yeah. And no. We'll find out. I'll do a poll. And you know what? Right, that's fine. Yeah. I will be victorious on this one. <laughs> no, you won't. Nobody wants to sleep on a hard floor. Because you said a hard floor. Yeah. Not a even hard, carpet. A hard hard yeah. floor. Yeah, that's right. I was purposely saying, like, people go, oh, well, the carpet's got a little padding. Nope. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying it has to be concrete, but it, it could be hardwoods. Linoleum. Anytime I've slept on a hard floor... A hard surface floor without a towel. I mean, without a towel, without a blanket or a pillow. I didn't wasn't really feeling anything anyway, so it didn't really matter. Yes. <laughs> yes. Normally, you're like, and I was in a fetal position in front of the toilet when that happened. Exactly. You know what? There are there are going to be people that are going to say, "Oh, you know what it is? You just take the blanket, fold it in half, and you sleep on half of it and fold the other." No, no. You're laying. <laughs> See, people cheat. They try That's to That's still cheat not enough. These. That's not enough. I mean, it'd have to be a super fluff down comforter for that to even make a dent. <laughs> Folding, I'm going to fold a sheet in half. They, yeah. Who cares? <laughs> no. <laughs> just a top sheet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is like, what am I? It's just sleeping on the sheet of paper. That's so yes. dumb. No. All right. Bed. All right. We'll bed, see. bed, bed. We'll see. I'm going to put a beer on this, all right? You're going to buy me a beer when, with my percentage. For sleeping with a blanket and a pillow is higher than your percentage of sleeping on a bed without one. If I win, you buy me a beer. That's fine. That's fine. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna have to get some Instagram folks to go. Yeah, <laughs> like good talk, luck. My, talk to my talk to my daughter. Go go pound this. She can only vote once. Right? Only... I know, but she has friends. <laughs> no, I don't see it happening. Okay. All right, we've been at it long enough, and I think we're I'm gonna call it quits. So thanks for being with us today for episode 96, The Big Idea. Special thanks to our sponsor, Peterson, who manufactures pack-clad architectural metal cladding systems. Peterson's products include wall and roof systems in both steel and aluminum and are available nationwide in 46 different Kynar-based PVDF colors. Visit pack-clad.com to learn more. In addition, special thanks to our media partner, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. 
Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish a big idea episode. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a comment. And I would appreciate it if you leave us a Eureka, I got it, five star rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this glorious episode and all that the website has to offer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.